The following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church pulpit series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. end of it actually. We're in the second last week of our series. We've been journeying through um, uh, Richard Foster's book on spiritual disciplines and we've looked at I think about six of them and so today we're going to look at another one and then finish off next week and then we're going to have Easter and then we're going to begin a new series called Encounters with Jesus which we're really really excited about so we'll tell you more about that as we go. I don't know if you've noticed but in the last couple of weeks the speakers, Lewis mentioned it, and then Jim mentioned it, I mentioned it three weeks ago, about the challenge we're facing when we talk about some of these topics. And each one's been saying, oh, this week is really hard, and the next week somebody gets up and goes, oh, you thought last week was hard, this week is harder, and, and so it keeps going. And, and this week we're going to be talking about serving. And I began to think about that. All of those topics are hard because they, they push against our natural inclinations, they push against our selfishness. They push against um, our culture. They, they push against our natural inclination and our bent. So when we hear things like solitude and silence in the context of our noisy world, we kind of go, what? When we hear things like submission in a world that's you know, preoccupied with status and power and identity, we go, what? And today when we talk about serving, it, it can provoke a similar response and reaction. Now, in one sense, serving is something PCC does well. Um, it's in the heart of this church, uh, and, and we have in our volunteer thank you day, uh, we have so many people. It's like we're having a church service because just about everyone in the church is actually at that event because a majority of our people do something, are involved in some way in the life of our church. But serving is one of these things that the more you kind of scratch beneath the surface, the more things you find that are quite confronting and quite challenging. And particularly when it comes to serving, I think there's a lot of stuff that goes on in the inside of us that actually trick us and can introduce things into our serving that can corrupt it. And so this morning, I want us to look at Jesus and I want to look at the model that he set. And I want us to ask ourselves some honest questions. And I'm going to try and be really transparent with you this morning, which is why I'm sitting down, because I don't want to, you know, freak myself out. But it's one of those topics that requires honest conversation. Again, because we are sometimes so familiar with this, and we, we see it as so much a part of our lives that we can be blindsided, and our hearts can deceive us. And so this morning, my message is entitled, The Son Who Is Servant. Um, and I think this statement is at the heart of really what Jesus is wanting us to grab a hold of. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John 13. We're going to go to the most famous passage, if you like, when it comes to thinking about serving. Uh, and it is a passage that reflects Jesus' attitude that drove his serving and hopefully will inform our thinking about how we serve. John chapter 13. This is on the eve of Jesus' crucifixion. It is um, this intimate, uh, close, special time that Jesus is sharing with his disciples. And he does something that's actually only recorded in John. That is a profound act of love and humility and servanthood. 
It says this, It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. And Jesus is not talking about being teleported. He's talking about his coming death. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I mean, you could just spend time reflecting on that statement. He loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, typical of Peter, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. All of me, Jesus. And Jesus answers, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, servants are not greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit to come and manifest your presence among us. We pray that you'll speak to our hearts. We pray that you will help us uh, to identify areas, Lord, that we need to correct and bring under the teaching of your word. We pray that, Lord, you would help us to hear what your Spirit is saying and give us the courage and the faith and the inspiration to obey you as we understand Jesus better and as we see what he's doing and saying clearer and as we receive the grace that only he can give us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A few things that I want to kind of bring out from this passage. Three main points that hopefully will challenge us to think about serving. The first one is that true service, and I want to use that label, true service, because plenty of people serve um, outside of the church, even within the church, and yet I think their serving is corrupted. Um, And I think, if I'm honest, my serving at times is corrupted. So true serving is really where we want to get to and the heart that we want to have. True serving flows out of security, in inner security. The, the first thing that strikes me about this passage is Jesus, we're told, John tells us that Jesus knew 
He knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. That knowledge brought incredible security and confidence for Jesus. And I want to suggest to you that without that, there is no hope of us ever being able to serve truly. What do I mean by that? Well, I think if we're honest, I certainly would admit, and maybe you would have the courage to admit, that a lot of our serving is not based out of security. I think we all wrestle with insecurity to different degrees. I think we all clutch for power, for for recognition, for acknowledgement, for control. Um, It's just part of our brokenness, part of our selfishness, part of our sinfulness. And I think it manifests itself in different ways. And we can see evidence of it in our serving. Let me just give you six ways I have seen my own insecurities playing out in my serving. Firstly, my corrupted serving is reflected in the idea that the bigger the task I'm asked to do, the better. The, the, the more significance of what I'm asked to do. So if I'm asked to be on stage and do something, this is I'm going back to even before I was a professional, if you like, preacher. If, if it involves something that was really prominent, well, that's good, you know, but cleaning toilets, picking up rubbish, well, that's kind of not so good. It shows up in that way. Again, because my serving is feeding something in me. Related very closely to this, the more public, the more people know about my serving, oh, the better it is. Definitely. And I've caught myself, and maybe you have, when I've been at church or I've been doing other things and, and nobody's there to see me and the thought enters my mind, gee, what a wonderful person you are. Isn't it a shame that more people aren't here to see how wonderful you are? And maybe that's just me. It feeds into that. Uh, the next one. Results. If our serving produces good results, well, that's great. That's better. What do I mean by this one? It's the you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours mentality. And now, you know, I'm Sri Lankan and, you know, curry culture is very strategic in who you invite to your wedding or to any other significant event because you invite them in the hope that, what, you get the return invitation. See, this... This thing that Jesus models for us about this inner security, it strikes to the heart of the question that we often ask about serving. What's in it for me? What's in it for me? And this third corruption, I see it in my life all the time, this idea that you know, if I do this, this is going to be kind of good for me. There's, there's a good return in this. We, we have this as part of our culture, you know, and maybe not so much in, in Australia, but certainly in America, the idea that if you go to a university and you apply for a job and there's somebody else who went to your university, you're supposed to look out for them somehow because you're part of this fellowship, this community. You're supposed to kind of scratch each other's back. So you do things, you do favors with the hope that somebody else will do you a return favor. 
Now, Jesus must have known about curry culture because in Luke 14, he tells them a parable about actually not doing the very thing that many of us do. He says, when you give a luncheon or a banquet or you host a party or you have a wedding, don't do the thing that we often do, which is what? He says, don't invite your friends. Don't invite your brothers, your relatives and rich neighbors. Why? Because they'll invite you back and then the debt is canceled. And he says, that will be your only reward. So if you want return for your serving, then keep doing that. But Jesus says, that's not my way. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, that's when you will get your reward. And not from other people, you'll get it from your father. God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. But our insecurity says, no, I want my reward now. I want recognition now. I want to be acknowledged now. I want the return now. Corruption. Corruption. Related to this, again, is the idea that the higher the status of the person I'm serving, the better. The more influential, the more powerful, the more renowned, the better. And you see this playing out in lots of ways. People in churches, particularly in other contexts, in other cultures, love serving the pastor. And I've been there, and I know, and they love it. If they can do anything for the pastor, they will do it. But ask them to do the same thing for somebody else, that's a whole different ballgame altogether. Corruption. It's a corrupted form of serving. Again, that operates on the question, what's in it for me? And serving people of higher status is good for me. But funnily enough, like I said to you, this whole thing about serving can be so messed up and twisted and corrupted. It's not so straightforward. Let me give you an example on this point. Flip it, flip it around. Yes, we do want to serve people of higher status, but there's another form of equal corruption where we want to serve the most oppressed and the most disadvantaged and the most marginalized and the downtrodden because that is good for me too. Because when people see how amazing I am because I'm caring for all these underprivileged, disadvantaged, disempowered people, they're going to say, wow, he's like Mother Teresa, just loving all these people. It's still corrupted. Status. Another one. Feelings. I will serve as long as it makes me feel good. As long as I'm enjoying the serving. Now, all of us have chores in our homes that we love to do. That's not a problem. It's the stuff that we don't want to do that we find difficult to do. Again, because it's running from this question of what's in it for me. And if I do the ironing and I get a pleasure and a thrill and a buzz out of it, well, then it's not an issue because I'm getting something out of it. But ask me to do the toilet. Man, no, sorry. When, we, when we're driven by what's in it for me, then our convenience comes into play. How we feel that day comes into play. Do I feel like doing this today comes into play. A corruption, again, based on an insecurity. Next one. Indebtedness. I love this one. And I see this again. In, in many cultures, in, in many families, um, this plays out in this way, where parents say things like, we've sacrificed for you. We've left our homes and we've come to Australia at great personal cost to us to give you a better life, the life we never had. And, and there's something coming at the end of that, right? What is that? Now you owe me. 
You owe me to do really well at school. You owe me to get a good education at university. You owe me to get a nice job, to actually have the life that I sacrificed for. A nice home with a nice car, a nice husband, a nice wife, nice children, nice dog, nice life. You owe me. Indebtedness. We serve, we do, in the hope that you will feel that you owe me. Jesus profoundly is so secure in who he was, so secure in in God's love for him and the fact that he was all-powerful. He already had everything in the Father. He was so secure and confident in where he'd come from and where he was going that he could just serve without the corruption. I wonder how much we can serve without corruption. And I want to suggest to you that without Christ, without His Holy Spirit transforming us from within, we have no hope. We have no hope. It has to go back to seeing what Jesus does for us in the gospel and reminding ourselves of the incredible affirmation that that gives us as God's children, of the security we can have, of the confidence and the acknowledgement and the self-worth and dignity and, and all of those things that we need so desperately to try and clutch onto. We have that in the Father. And unless we believe that and are truly convinced of that, our serving, I believe, will perpetually be corrupted. Corrupted. The second thing that, that Jesus models for us is this idea of humility. And I want to suggest to you that true serving flows out of humility. Flows out of humility. Uh, Richard Foster, he says this, and I love this quote. He says, most of us accept the reality that we'll never be the greatest, but we just don't want to be the least. I think that's true. And I see that in this passage. Washing people's feet was the job that the lowest person, the least important, the least significant person was entrusted with. Notice that none of the other disciples are clamoring to do this job. No one. It's not because they they were convinced that they were the greatest. Not at all. They knew who that was. But none of them wanted to be the least. None of them wanted to be at the bottom of the social ladder. You see, this truth strikes at the very heart of our culture's preoccupation with the pecking order. Where do I stand? Where do I, where's my rank? It answers the question or challenges the question, who is the most important person in the room? Or who is the least important person in the room? And what I find profoundly moving about this passage is that Jesus is in this room as the most powerful, the most important, the most profound, the most whatever adjective you want to use, that's him. He's in the room as that person. And he wraps a towel around himself. And he chooses to put himself in the place of the least. And he washes the feet of the mud and the clay that he formed and he breathed into. He takes on the position of the least. He steps into that room and he says to all his disciples, I am the least in this room today. And I'm going to show you that by serving you. 
And that's why he goes on to say, you don't fully understand this. You don't fully appreciate this, but you will because the cross was coming, which is the ultimate demonstration, the ultimate act of of humility and love that Jesus goes on to then demonstrate in laying down his life. God, who has been and is the one that is offended by our sin and rebellion, is now the one that's dying to pay for our penalty, for our sin, for our rebellion, saying, I will make myself the least. I will sacrifice myself. I will embrace humanity, pain, suffering, separation, so that you can have something that I always had being the least in the room. And again, I think if we, if we don't get that the kingdom is upside down or right side up, however you want to look at that, that Jesus often said that if you want to be great, you've got to be small. You've got to be the least. If you want to find your life, you've actually got to lose it. The way up is actually down, and the way to lead is actually to serve. It is to be the least in the room. Now, the interesting thing about serving is that serving flows out of humility. But the problem with humility is that it's not something that you can just go, you know what, I'm going to be more humble. And Jim Elliott, who spoke on submission last Sunday, talked a lot about that, that you can't just will yourself to be more humble. It's, hum, humility doesn't work that way. But Richard Foster, he says something quite interesting about serving. He says, the grace of humility is worked into our lives through the discipline of service. So not only does service and true service flow out of humility, as we truly and genuinely serve other people, it actually produces more humility in our heart. And it creates this incredible cycle. We serve and we are humbled by the process. And as we are humbled by that process, we serve more. And as we serve more, we are humbled even more because we keep reminding ourselves, I am not the most important person in this room. You are. You are. And it speaks to the heart of what Paul says in Romans 12. Honor the other person as more important than yourself. And Jesus, I think it's in Luke 14, told another parable. He says, when you go to a banquet, don't take the most important seat because somebody else will come and pull you down a notch or two. Go in and take the lowest seat. Be the least. And let somebody else tell you, no, that's not your seat. You deserve greater honor. Let somebody else do that for you. And so serving strikes at the heart of our culture's preoccupation with status and identity and power and, and control and, and, uh, and being important, feeling important. And Jesus says, no, that is not the kingdom way, which is why in Mark 10, he explicitly said that. And he was talking about his own life. And he said, the, the rulers of this age, well, they, they dominate. They, they, they rule differently. But he says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be the first must be the slave of all. Whoever, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus models servanthood radically differently. And it shows that it flows out of a heart of humility. The last principle, Jesus goes on right at this, the last part to say, verse 14, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example, Jesus says, that you should do as I have done. Very truly, I tell you, servants are not greater than their masters. 
Verse 17, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus is not looking for people to add serving to a to-do list. He's not interested in his disciples listing a whole bunch of things that they're going to do to serve people. It's not a code of ethics he wants them to embrace. It's a lifestyle. Jesus models for them this idea that serving is something that should so characterize our lives that it's intuitive, it's natural, it's, it's what we do. Uh, Richard Foster says this, that there's a difference between acting as a servant and being a servant. There's a difference. See, a, a servant will, will do what they're told to do. Sorry, uh, somebody who is doing works of service will just do what they're told to do. But when you're a servant, you see things and you see opportunities for you to serve. You don't, you don't need to be told. You don't, you don't wait to be told. It's so part of your nature and your outlook that you look for opportunities to be a blessing to someone else. It flows out of you. Serving as a lifestyle. Uh, Richard Foster then goes on in his book to talk about nine different ways that we can embrace serving as a lifestyle. Now, we don't have time to go through all nine of them, so I want to focus just on six of these. And I want to challenge us to think about embracing servanthood as a lifestyle. Because Jesus in this passage, he so values this that he ends this passage with a promise of a blessing. And he says, we will be blessed if we do these things, if we live this way, if we embrace this heart of serving one another as a lifestyle. It's what it means to, to be a Christian and a follower of Jesus. If we live this way then we'll be blessed. We will be blessed. So I bring these to you as ways for you to be blessed by Jesus. And again, this is where our hearts can be so deceptive. We can serve because we want the blessing. Because there's something in it for me again. Now again, the Bible promises that God will bless. God will reward but our serving should flow out of something else than a desire for something from God. It's hard to kind of get that tension right. All right, six things to embrace as we pursue a lifestyle of serving. Number one, this, and Foster calls these different services. So the first one he talks about is the service of hiddenness. Hiddenness. He says, make it your priority to do things that will more than more often than not, be hidden, be anonymous, not recognized, not seen, not known. Because again, this strikes at the very heart of our flesh that wants to be seen, that wants to be acknowledged, that wants to be known. Focus on serving in the dark, serving in hiddenness, in obscurity, in anonymity. Do things that honor Christ that you know no one will ever know. I read a story um, about the guy who did the Statue of Liberty, made it and painted it, designed it, crafted it. And this story was told about, you know, one day when this guy was flying over the top of it in a helicopter, he looked down on the Statue of Liberty and he saw the, the, the top, the head of the Statue of Liberty. Now, if you've ever visited there, if you've ever seen any pictures, you would know that no one would ever see that part. No one. And when it was made ages ago, a couple of hundred years ago, I think, there were no such things as helicopters. So the guy who made it 
would never have thought one day in the future, somebody's going to fly over the top of this thing and see the top. So I better make sure it's good. No, but he already decided that he was going to make that thing as good as every other part. The detail, the finish was so exquisite. It was no different to any other part of the Statue of Liberty. Knowing that possibly no one was ever going to see my craftsmanship on the top of the Lady Liberty's head. But he didn't stop him from doing it. That's what Foster says. We should embrace a lifestyle where we give our best, knowing that nobody might ever see this, and that's okay. And that's okay. The second one, kind of again related to this, is the service of small things. Of small things. Uh, Bonhoeffer, in his book, um, when he's talking about Christian community, talked a lot about just doing ordinary things, everyday things. Um, not waiting for the big task, just being a help. And this is what he said, uh, the person who worries about the loss of time with such petty outward acts of helpfulness, um, entail, uh, helpful, outward acts of helpfulness entail is usually taking the importance of his own career too solemnly. If you, basically what he's saying is if you, if you think you're too good to do little things, maybe you've actually thought too highly of yourself. You know, one of the... Uh, one of the wonderful acts that somebody did for me and happens every now and again at a shopping center when we're at, you know, you see trolleys wandering all around. And this particular day, uh, you know, I had my groceries and my car was a long way away from the closest trolley bay and I was unloading my groceries and somebody else came and offered to take my trolley back to the trolley bay. It was, it was like, it was a simple act of helpfulness, of kindness, but it made such a huge impact. See, sometimes we wait for the grand, big demonstrations. But Foster says that if you want to embrace a lifestyle of serving, look for the little opportunities that present themselves every day, all around us, just to be helpful, just to be kind, to be considerate, to be generous. Third one. This is a challenging one. Foster calls it the serving through guarding the reputation of others. He says we can serve people by guarding our mouths, by guarding our tongues. We can serve people by protecting their integrity and their character and their reputation. And you would know just in a very brief reading of the New Testament, there are so many warnings in Scripture about gossip and slander. In fact, in Romans 1, you know, right after that passage that we talk so much about that mentions about homosexuality, also has slander and gossip as being two of the sins that people will be excluded from the kingdom of God for. And yet, how many churches are ripped apart by slander and gossip? The whole book of James, throughout, James talks about the power of the tongue. Not just in chapter 3, that's the one we're familiar with. But if you actually read chapter 1 and chapter 5, there are other references that James warns about slander and about using our tongue in ungodly ways. I would love for you individually to make a commitment in your workplace, in your family, in church, wherever you are, that you will be the one that stops the train of gossip at your station, that it will not move any further than you. You can't control what other people say and what other people do. You can't control what other people tell you, but you can control what you do with that. And unless it, it affects the safety of someone 
and it, it's a genuine concern that you have for their well-being or for somebody else's well-being, then tell someone that can actually do something about it. Tell someone that is in a position to actually help rather than using it as an opportunity, again, to get power and control over somebody else because knowledge is power. And that's why serving this way is, again, it's dealing a death blow to knowledge being power, where we guard it. We protect people's reputation because, again, we are saying by doing that, you are more valuable than me. You are more important than me. I want to honor you more than me. And we protect the integrity and character and reputation of people by saying, it stops with me. The next one, these are really interesting ones. Common courtesy. Richard Foster says that we, we have a saying, minding your P's and Q's. It's about saying please and thank you and, and greeting people and, and politeness and courtesy. He says that's another way that we serve one another. Why? Because it actually shows the value and the worth of the other person. When we actually take time to acknowledge an invitation and we RSVP, it's saying we value you. You are of worth that requires me to respond to you. And again, I think in some cultures we, 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 we lose this. And more and more in our Western culture, we, we, we dismiss this and we think that it's not so important anymore. And Foster says that this is a profound way that we can actually serve one another and honor one another and show value and grace and kindness to one another just through our politeness. And so I encourage you, say please, say thank you, show appreciation, write a note, send a card, don't be silent. Don't wait till, um, I'm hoping that, you know, with Philip and Vicky, that there will not be hundreds of people that write in there that have never actually thanked them for the things that you're writing in that book. I hope that you've, they already know that you appreciate them and value them because you've taken the opportunity while they've been here over the last 20 years to thank them for their different things that you've noticed and you've done. And maybe if you haven't, well, let's start a new culture in our church that says we're not going to wait till people are leaving or till their funeral to tell people how amazing they were. Let's show appreciation and let's show love. And let's show, with our words, let's use them to bring life and encouragement rather than death to their reputations. Listening. Foster says that listening is one of the most profound gifts that you can offer someone. Bonhoeffer agrees and he says this, the first service that one owes to others in the fellowship consists in the listening to them. The beginning of love for the brethren is learning to listen to them. Now, let me just say, you, you don't need to be a counselor to listen to people. You don't need to be an expert. You don't need to have the answers to all the problems. You, you don't need to be gifted. You just pretty much need a couple of basic things. One of them is to just keep your mouth shut. That's, that's why God gave us two ears and one mouth, because listening is twice as important as speaking, and yet we talk so much more than we listen. And again, confession time, I am accused of this often. As a pastor, I know you're thinking, unthinkable, you'd be a great listener. No, but I'm also a great talker, and that's the problem. I interject, I ask questions, I you know, want to get clarification when I should just shut up and just listen and help people understand or help people know that I have understood them and I care enough just to let them speak. So many people would just love to have the opportunity for someone to listen to them. 
You can serve people in your workplace, in your family, by just doing that, just listening. Powerful, powerful way to serve. Last one, really interesting. The service of being served. Being served. Peter, in John 13, he really struggles with this one. Jesus comes to him and he's like, no, 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 no. Jesus, you shouldn't be serving me. Now, you know, many of us who come from different cultural backgrounds and maybe even in Western culture, we struggle with it. We're happy to serve, but you, know, you don't serve me. I serve you. And there might be a whole bunch of reasons for that. And I'm not going to try and figure that out. But if we're honest, I think a lot of that stems from veiled pride. It is what it is. The reason is that sometimes we think, I don't need your help. You need my help. When you say it like that, what does that sound like? Pride. See, that's why Foster says that allowing somebody else to serve me, serve you, is also an act of service because it allows them to have power over me in that sense. To... It acknowledges, hey, I need you. And that's my way of serving you, to allow you to use the gifts that God's given you, to use the resources God's given you, to give you opportunity to serve me. And it kind of creates an interesting dynamic where I now have to humble myself to receive your serving. That's why Foster says, this is an, it's a difficult one. Because again, we play games in our mind with serving. And Peter struggled with this, and Jesus goes, if you don't let me, I mean, just think about that. How would you react if you were there? I would react just like Peter, and probably you would too. Jesus, you shouldn't be serving me. No, 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 let me serve you. And Jesus says, if you don't let me do this, and again, ultimately, when we see the cross, that's the ultimate service. And Jesus is saying, if you can't receive from me, and if you are not able to humble yourself and recognize you need me, then you will have no part in me. You can't be a part of the kingdom because my death on the cross is your ultimate need. And if you're saying, no, 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 Jesus, I don't need you. I don't need your serving. Then you will be lost. Challenging. I told you, when I started this journey, I thought, oh, serving, yeah, it's going to be easy, no brainer, we get this. We... And then I'm, re- I'm going, oh, good Lord, that hurts. It's confronting, it's challenging, and that's why Foster has it in his book as a spiritual discipline because without understanding the gospel and the grace of God and how Jesus actually serves us in the cross and frees us from slavery to sin and frees us from slavery to self-righteousness and frees us from slavery to trying to earn God's favor by our good works and by trying to earn his favor. If Jesus hadn't died on the cross to save us from ourselves and from our selfishness and all of that, there would be no hope for us. But Jesus has. Jesus does wash, not just our feet, but all of us. He cleanses us from our unrighteousness. He makes us right with God. We're no longer slaves, Romans 8 tells us. We're now the children of God. We are heirs with Christ. We have a full inheritance, which is why Jesus can say in Matthew 6, it doesn't matter if nobody sees your acts of charity and kindness because your Father knows. He sees And in Hebrews 6 verse 10, the the writer says that God has not forgotten your acts of help for the brethren. 
He sees. And when we accept Jesus' forgiveness, when we accept His serving and what He did on the cross for us, it fills our hearts with the self-assurance and the confidence and the value and the dignity and the self-worth and the inner security that can only come from knowing that we're God's kids that we've been reconciled, forgiven, and that our Father loves us. We don't need to earn His favor and His forgiveness and His grace. Jesus has done that for us through His serving us on the cross. And as we sit in that security, that inside fullness that tells me I am loved and I'm accepted in Christ, only then can I truly serve the way Jesus modeled. My last word, a caution. When Again, talking about serving, it's so easy to get a corruption that creeps in. So I want to say this as simply as I can. You are not God. Just accept that. You're not all present. You're not all powerful. You don't have all the resources. You don't own the cattle on a thousand hill. You're just not God. So you will never be able to meet every need, nor does God expect you to. I want you to really hear this because in our church culture, we can so easily get this wrong because you can mishear what I'm saying and become a slave to servanthood. That is not what Jesus wants. Remember this. We are called to serve all. In other words, we're called to serve all people, young, old, kids, people from all cultures, all back. We're called to serve all, but we're not called to do all. Richard Foster says this, every yes means you're saying no to something else. Every time you say yes to an opportunity to meet a need, to do something for someone, you're saying no to another need that's equally valid, that could equally take your time and your attention and your demands, and you're saying no to that, and that's okay. So the challenge is learning when to say yes, what to say yes to, and also when to say no and what to say no to because we're all finite. And if we fall into the trap of saying yes and yes and yes to a whole bunch of stuff, what we don't realize is we're saying no to our family, no to our friends, no to church, no to a whole bunch of stuff because we're so busy saying yes to these things. So Foster says we need the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom and discernment in what to say yes to and what to say no to and how to live in that tension. Last quote and then we'll pray. What we need is to learn the rhythm of the Holy Spirit. And that's why all of these spiritual disciplines are connected. So that our yes or our no to calls of service will arise out of that harmony. That harmony. Why don't you bow your heads? Close your eyes. And just take a moment to just reflect on what I've said. Just allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. I know I covered a lot of stuff.